This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. This presentation is delivered by the Stanford Center for Professional Development, providing graduate-level education to working professionals online, on campus, and on-site. For more information, please visit study.stanford.edu. Uh, the uh, speech today, or talk today, is uh, by Bill Thies. Uh, Bill has uh, been working in the area of microfluidics, uh, which uh, is an unusual way of uh, performing uh, chemical analyses on a device. And since it's programmable, it really stretches the limits of multi-core computing and compilation there, too. I think it's going to be a great talk. Bill? Great. Thank you, Dennis. Give him a welcome. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. So it's great to be here today to talk about some of the interdisciplinary work that we've been doing in our lab recently. And the high-level goal of this project is to leverage uh, recent advances in microfluidic chips to enable biologists to perform a broad class of experiments that are impossible to do using uh, current techniques. We're taking both a hardware and a software approach where we're building a new class of general purpose chips uh, to execute new experiments, and then inventing new programming languages and compilers to enable uh, biologists to program these chips just like they would program a normal computer. And we think by enabling this programmability, you can really unlock the potential of the coming uh, revolution in biology, just like programmability was key for unlocking the full potential of silicon computers. So I'd like to begin by uh, acknowledging our collaborators. This is really a deeply interdisciplinary project uh, with close collaborations. I sit in the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab and work with Saman Amarasinghe. And we've been collaborating very closely with Todd Thorson's group in the Microfluidics Lab at MIT. So students J.P. Urbanski and David Craig have invested many hours in helping us make all of this work. We're also collaborating with uh, the Harvard Medical School, uh, Jeremy Gunawardena's group, and the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine, uh, Professor Mark Johnson's group. So how did we become interested in this area? Well, we just basically started noticing all the cool stuff that was going on with microfluidic chips. So for those of you not familiar, uh, microfluidic chip aims to integrate all of the biology lab functions onto a single small plastic device. So as you can see, it has inputs and outputs. Uh, it has different sensors for seeing what's going on on the device, pH, glucose, and so on. Uh, actuators for affecting how the fluids are moving. You can mix fluids, do PCR, electrophoresis, and so on. And compared to their typical uh, big laboratory uh, counterparts, they have a lot of uh, benefits. So you have very small sample volumes, which is important if you have expensive reagents that you're using. You can do very high throughput because you're doing lots of things in parallel on these devices. And you can uniquely manipulate some of the cells and other species on the device uh, using geometric manipulation. Broad array of applications uh, spanning from cell biology through biochemistry and people have recently also started to apply these chips to the field of biological computation, though that's not really our interest uh, for the current work. So what really uh, is exciting to us in this space, kind of from a computer architecture standpoint, is the technology trend in microfluidics. So this is a plot of the valve density, or the feature density, on these chips over the past uh, seven or eight years. 
And it's from the Fluidime Corporation, which is one of the leaders in this space. And as you can see, it's been uh, doubling approximately every four months. So they had the first valve at the end of the 90s. And these days, uh, they're upwards uh, approaching 100,000 of, of valves on the chips. So if you zoom in uh, to this DID chip from a few years ago, uh, this is what it looks like. So you have 80,000 uh, separate storage chambers that you can use individually to perform experiments. And this is starting to look a lot like a VLSI device. It looks a lot like a computer chip. And you have an overwhelming array of resources that you can use. And the natural question to ask now is, let's say you're a biologist with your unique experiment that you want to run on a chip like this. How do you go about mapping that experiment to the underlying hardware? So that's what we're uh, interested in. And unfortunately, the current practice uh, is pretty primitive. They're basically exposing all of the gate level details the whole way up to the end user. So you use a graphical system, uh, for example, LabVIEW uh, or similar, to really toggle the individual valves in the device, the actual gates, to affect the fluids in the way you want them to move. And of course, there are a lot of problems with this. Yeah, I have a naive question before I get more. Yeah. So on the chip, do you also have electrical signals to close and open the valves, or, or is it all fluids? Uh, so we use pneumatic inputs to control the, uh, the, the flow of fluids. We'll go into the details right, so of that. So there's no electricity. I mean, other chips can integrate electronics, other approaches to microfluidics that control individual droplets. We're more dealing with a uh, air-driven system. Yeah. So the electronics are offloaded. Yeah, Monica. So you're asking questions. Yeah. Can you tell us, like, what is it for, and why do we need so many experiments, and how fast do you need it for what purpose? Uh, so a lot of these experiments are in kind of high-throughput screening. You're interested in isolating just a few molecules, a few strands, a few cells treating each one individually and seeing which ones have interesting properties. And also you can uh, go on and actually stimulate these cells and get feedback from the chip to actually provoke them in new ways to understand the underlying biology. We'll come back to some actual applications that, that we're actually doing. Good, good. What is this made of? I mean, uh, I have hard time imagining it's like I, I, I'm, I'm going to get into the details. Yeah, there's, it, it's PDMS. Uh, it's a plastic <laughs> polydimethyl siloxane. I actually have some chips here. Uh, it's a standard process. Uh, you guys can, can take some chips home and, and play with them yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. Run our own experiment. Yep, yep. So uh, th this is kind of the programming model now. So we want to improve on this. Uh, this is kind of preaching the, to the choir with a computer science audience. But obviously, whenever your whole system is uh, architecture-specific, it's really hard to migrate to any new architecture when your whole experimental design is tied to the underlying details on your chip. So what we'd like to do is have basically a write-once, run-anywhere system, so kind of like Java or C, which is portable between different actual computers. What we'd like biologists to do is write a precise description of the experiment that they want to perform, and then we'll automatically uh, port that from one chip to another. And so it, now as the technology evolves, you can automatically execute your previous experiments and build on them using modules to do more interesting things later. So for example, uh, here's the kind of code that we want you to write. You can say I have a fluid, I'll call it yellow, on input 0, fluid blue on input 1, and I can just write a loop that'll mix these two fluids uh, in decreasing proportions of yellow and increasing proportions of blue. And when you press a key, this actually executes on your device. And here's a picture uh, of this gradient on one of our chips. So a lot of details here are hidden from the programmer, which is good. You're not worried about where these location fluids are stored uh, for the inputs, the details of how we do the mixing, the input-output, uh, all the logic underneath. You don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. And now you can focus on you know, scaling up more interesting biology experiments and build on uh, solid, robust primitives. Yep, good. 
So, so the four is what over time? I mean, as, as time progresses, you're going to be mixing it differently? Uh, yes, so we execute, this is a sequential program. And what we're doing is we're mixing different concentrations and we're actually storing it. Yeah, this is, this is a little bit compressed code for the PowerPoint version. But whenever you mix something, it'll actually, uh, it'll store it in a location on the device. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you could be storing these in a more explicit location. Yeah. Other questions? Uh, we'll get into the architecture design. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are different architectures you could, you could use. Good. Okay, so of course we translate this into the underlying sequence of valve actuations. So it's a, it's a big simplification to have a high-level language, as we know. Okay, so what we're, we've been advocating is that to really deal with this complexity in microfluidics, you need a well-defined set of abstraction layers for fluidics, just like you find in the computer world. So at the bottom of this picture, you have the hardware primitives, and I'm going to tell you more about what these are like. Uh, the analog would be transistors and registers uh, in a computer. You can move up and build all kinds of different chips out of these primitives, uh, and they could be general-purpose chips that can do a broad array of experiments, just like you see in the silicon world. On top of that, we'd like to introduce what we call a fluidic instruction set architecture, which provides a layer of portability between these different devices. So as long as you have uh, basically a portable layer, you can escape the problems of having to retarget your experiment as the underlying uh, chips are changing. And then finally, uh, up in the protocol description uh, language, analogously to C or Java, you want actual natural uh, primitives that biologists can use to express the underlying computations uh, or the, the uh, experiments in their protocols. So this will kind of serve as an outline for the first half of my talk. And I'm just going to start at the bottom uh, and work my way up through these layers. And uh, of course, again, kind of preaching to the choir, but uh, for biologists, you have to uh, talk about why these layers are really useful, right? And they really proved useful in computer science. It really controlled the complexity and let us basically have a division of labor where no single person needs to understand all the layers inside your computer. You can specialize yourself to a layer and not have to be an expert in, for in this case, biology, microfluidics, and computer science in order to automate a big uh, reaction. Portability, we've, we've been through. Scalability, you know, when you're doing just one or two valves, you can do it by hand, but 80,000 starts to be a lot more challenging. And just expressivity, we'd really like to raise the level of abstraction in expressing these protocols that biologists use so that they can uh, do more and more interesting things. So I'd like to start uh, here at the bottom. Yeah. Um, so are you using any existing formalisms? Uh, formalisms for, which for example, part? I mean, there's a lot of work in, done uh, in biology and formalizing mm -hmm. uh, biological processes. Right, and right. The name escapes me as a researcher in, in Cambridge. Microsoft. Uh, yes, yes, I've seen some of the, yeah, the membrane-type computing exactly. models, things like that. Uh, so we're actually not trying to model the underlying biology. What we're trying to do is make it natural to direct an experiment. So how do you control the operations on the device so that the bi biology will take care of itself? So uh, it's not a very formal framework. Yeah, you'll see how the programming works out. But uh, we're very practical at this point. Yeah. Pragmatic. Pragmatic. Okay, so I'd like to start at the bottom and just give you kind of a whirlwind tour of what, the, what you can do uh, with microfluidic primitives for people not familiar. So probably the most uh, basic primitive is a valve. And this was actually developed by Stephen Quake's group, who's now a professor uh, at Stanford. So he's kind of one of the leaders in this space. And if you, the way you build a valve is by having two layers uh, in your device. So you have a control layer where the pneumatic inputs are plugged in. 
and can exert pressure on the lower layer. And the lower layer is where your fluids will actually flow during execution. So you start, I'm going to show you how to make a valve. You have two masks, uh, just in a standard uh, photolithography process. And you deposit a layer of photoresist on a wafer uh, for each of the masks. And then you pour this plastic uh, over your uh, photoresist. You have a thick layer here for the uh, control channel, and then a thin layer on the bottom for the flow channel. You can bake. Uh, this plastic and peel it off of the mask so you have independent units and then you deposit the flow channel on a glass slide and you punch a hole down into the control channel so you can put a pneumatic input in that place. Then you align the uh, control, control layer over the flow layer and do a secondary cure, baking again, to get a monolithic device. And now you have this pressure actuator at the top where if you pressurize this uh, control channel it'll press down into the flow layer and restrict the flow along this channel. So that's your fundamental primitive for manipulating the fluid flow, is preventing fluids from going down a certain path. And of course, the fluids are also pressurized externally, so the default motion is just to flow. So what can you do if you have a valve? Well, you can start building uh, more complex primitives. So you might want to build an efficient multiplexer, where you have a set of parallel lines and want to select one of them. So again, the red layer is the control layer here. And we're going to select a flow line of interest by basically blocking out all of the other alternatives. So the natural state of a valve is just open. All fluids can flow. So if you want to select an individual flow line, uh, you need to have options to block either part of the flow that you want to restrict. So for example, if we're selecting the third flow line here, we would actuate all of the valves except those overlapping uh, the flow line. And I should have mentioned these thin connections don't form a valve. You need to have a thick area to get a closure underneath. So then the third area would be free to, free to flow. And this is how you can direct uh, exactly what you want to happen underneath. So again, because we don't have complementary logic here, you actually need two log n control lines to select from n possible flow lines underneath. Yes? You have this, uh, this device which uh, yeah. creates a path. Mm. But what do you do about the residue? Residue, I mean, this yes. Is, this is a fluid. It's so fluid. It'll so leave little pieces of itself. We're going to get there. You can either wash the channels, or you can isolate the samples from each other by having a background phase. For example, suspend aqueous samples in oil. So we'll get to that question in detail. Third primitive uh, is a mixer. Of course, mixing is kind of the center of many biological experiments. You want different uh, concentrations of various fluids in your system. Uh, one way to do a mixer is with a rotary system, where you load one sample on the bottom, uh, load another sample on the top, and then you can use peristaltic pumping uh, to actuate the fluids in a rotary motion, and they flow around until it's homogeneous. So you've accomplished uh, mixing on the chip. Fourth primitive uh, we call a latch, and this is something that we actually invented as we were trying to get bigger and bigger chips to work robustly. The problem a latch solves is that, let's say you have a sample flowing down your flow line, and you want to make sure that it's precisely aligned with some feature at the end, maybe a camera, a mixer, or something else. Uh, if you don't have real-time feedback from the device, you'd like to just have open-loop control of letting your sample go and stop when it gets there. So that's what a latch does. Here's our sample. You close the latch. The sample will advance towards the latch, and it catches the sample while allowing the background phase of oil to continue to flow. And a latch is basically a partially closed valve uh, that only catches uh, things that are high up in the control layer.
or in the flow layer, rather. Of course, biologists are very interested in cells, and there are lots of ways to grow cells on a microfluidic device, uh, different technologies. In our chips, uh, we use a U-shaped microsieve inside of the chambers. So what you can do is, this is what every chamber is looking like now. It has little uh, catches, basically, to trap the cells as they're flowing through in a culture medium. So the cells will deposit, and they can start to grow there, as you see on the right. Uh, these are actually individual cells. And it's very specific. Uh, you have to get the right kind of morphology here. But you can grow very healthy cells inside a microfluidic device. And what you do then is you just flow other fluids through into the cells. So the cells don't move. They've been affixed to the storage location. But you can feed them all kinds of uh, different inputs and stimuli to study their behavior. And if it hasn't been clear yet, uh, how do you get data out of the device? Well, you can just image and detect directly under a microscope. So these chips are translucent. You can position it under the microscope and uh, get the data directly out. And this is really important, of course, for closing a feedback loop in your experiment. You know, these days, a lot of biologists, uh, or their experiments, rather, are just kind of a shoot and go thing. You set it up, you let it run, you, you analyze the results in the lab. And the opportunity here is to have real-time feedback into a very sophisticated control program where you can really poke and punch the cells or whatever else is on the chip uh, to do something interesting. So that was kind of an overview of the fluidic hardware primitives. So moving on up to the fluidic instruction set architecture. So given these primitives, you can construct any uh, arrangement of different uh, functionality on a single chip. And people have built hundreds of such devices uh, in the research literature. And what we'd like to do is kind of define a layer which has an interesting uh, basic set of instructions that all of these chips can execute or could be extended to easily execute. So you could migrate uh, a binary program, basically, from one chip to another. Now, before we start getting into the details of the ISA, we need to talk about what the machine model will look like. So this comes back to the von, von Neumann question. So right now, a lot of microfluidic chips are very special purpose. Uh, they're built for a single experiment. And we're kind of pushing that direction towards a more general purpose view of the world. So our vision is that you'd be able to uh, form a class or family of chips that could execute a broad range of experiments. So it would basically have a big fluidic storage array where they could keep samples or they could keep cells, uh, some sensors and actuators uh, for anything you would possibly want to do to those cells or those fluids, and a big input and output multiplexer uh, to get things in and out uh, from the world. Now, this, as an abstract picture, this looks pretty nice. But there are a lot of details in how you would actually go about doing this. right? And one of the first details is, as we mentioned here, fluids are a very analog system. You know, they flow. Uh, they're, they're not just like bits where you can copy them around. So the first kind of abstraction that we have in this fluidic ISA is the notion of a digital architecture. So what does it mean to have a digital architecture with microfluidics? Uh, well, recent techniques, and some of which we've helped develop, can actually isolate one sample from another inside these devices. So you can talk about actually isolating a unit of sample and manipulating it independently without appreciable loss uh, on the channels or uh, other places in the device. And so now we can have an abstract machine where all the samples, let's say, have the same unit volume. So this is looking like a digital architecture. You have individual samples of fluid, and you can move them to different places on the chip or operate them as you want. Yes. So, oh, compared to like a, a big like laboratory, uh, 
Yeah, on a percentage basis, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure pipettes have a residual problem too, but th this is going to be a focus of the talk. Big challenge is the fluid loss, right? So it, it's impossible to build uh, a completely perfect chip that will not lose any fluid as you're moving them around, right? You're going to have evaporation, adherence to the uh, channel walls. You'll, you'll lose some species one way or another. This is a, a lossy physical system. So if we want to maintain this digital abstraction of having a single uh, unit volume everywhere in the chip, we have to somehow address this question of loss, because otherwise we're just going to have immediate scalability uh, problems. So how do we do this? Well, we're not the only field with a problem about loss. Uh, electronics obviously had this problem starting out. Uh, you had loss of charge in the hardware. And you know they nipped this at the bud by replenishing the charge. We have gain, thankfully, in electronic devices and was really an enabling uh, technology for letting the circuit scale up to much higher complexity. Now in microfluidics, uh, instead you have loss of fluids at the bottom level. And what do you do about loss of fluids? Well, can you replenish the fluids? Uh, maybe. Uh, once you've lost the fluids, you, know, you can't go and retrieve those fluids that you lost. They're going to be lost forever. But you could possibly replenish in a different way. For example, you could add water to any fluid which is getting low in volume, for example, due to evaporation. But this may affect the chemistry if you have a non-aqueous sample, so uh, it's a little non-ideal. So your other option is to push this complexity up a little bit higher in the abstraction layers and actually expose this loss in the ISA. And being a compiler person, you know, everyone tells the compiler to deal with it. Just tell the <laughs> compiler, tell the compiler to deal with it, and we'll, we'll, we'll do our best. But often the compiler can't deal with it, so what are we going to do? Well, we just push it up to the user, right? <laughs> Say, expose the loss in the language and let the user deal with it. Now, both of these have their place, and we'll talk about how we can break this down. But in this talk, I'll show how we can leverage both of these techniques uh, to really have a robust system. And if you think this is crazy, exposing things up this high in the abstraction layers, uh, it might not be, because actually on the electronic side, pretty soon we're going to have similar problems. Uh, so we're moving to 45 nan nanometers, 30 nanometers, Replenishing charge is not necessarily that easy. And some people have proposed recently uh, you know, actually having randomized gates in the instruction set architecture. You can utilize this actually for uh, some power savings if you're actually doing a randomized algorithm. So these kinds of ideas, and maybe even higher, let's say you have soft errors, and some people are proposing actual high-level solutions to those soft errors uh, in the underlying hardware. So this might work both ways. Uh, it's just a front-edge problem in microfluidics. Yeah. So scale with density. As you get smaller, the portion or the surface area of the channels is going yeah. to grow uh, fairly sig to be fairly significant relative to the volume. So uh, it gets that's worse true. as you scale. So it depends how you're isolating your samples. So if, you have, if your samples are touching the channel walls, uh, th that may be true. Usually we're actually isolating our samples as a suspension in an oil, which is actually doing the transport around the, uh, around the device. So there, as you go lower, uh, yeah, I can't really say about the scaling there. I mean, then you have other reasons for losing fluids. You have slight imprecision in your valve closing, slight imprecision in your uh, other systems. So I think, yeah, time will tell. I'm not sure about that. Yep. Why don't you produce repetition uh, for the lower level? Repetition. <coughs> have enough redundancy in the simple case of, uh, if you know you're going to have, ten per, uh, say, 50% loss, you start at twice as much. Oh, sorry for trying to And the rest so, you can ha handle higher. So we, we do something very similar. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs>
Yeah. Seems like these devices are a lot cheaper and a lot faster to make than semiconductors are. And one of the reasons Absolutely. why you have a problem with loss is you're doing a general purpose device. <coughs> so have you thought at all about trying to synthesize a specialized device instead and maybe cut down on the loss that way? So this is definitely an interesting uh, uh, approach, is having just automatically generating a special purpose device to do your experiment. Uh, in terms of loss, maybe. I mean, yes and no. I mean, you could imagine you could uh, construct a general purpose device that's actually optimized around minimizing loss. And it could be the case that the technologies you need to minimize the loss in the long term might be a little bit more sophisticated. Maybe they take higher verification uh, complexity, so, something that you might have a benefit of being in a predefined, well-built architecture. So it, it's a good point. I, I'm not sure in the long run. Yeah. So let's move into the ISA and address this idea of the, uh, of the loss. So let's just give an example instruction, which is the mixing instruction. So lots of chips can do mixing. Uh, they have all different technologies for doing them. If you're kind of going to draw a common layer across how mixers work, one kind of mixing that all different chips can support is mixing in equal proportions. So you start with one uh, unit of one sample, one unit of another, combine them in a 50-50 mixture, and you can look at the result. So for portability, our mixed instruction uh, works like that. We'll move two samples to the mixer and mix them, and store it in a destination cell. And now we're kind of embracing and exposing the loss up the layers of the ISA. So if you're going to expose some loss, from a research perspective, we just as well expose a lot of loss. So what we're actually going to do uh, and see where it takes us is just nuke the other half of the sample. We'll, we'll dispose of it if you actually got it. But you can implement, for now, any chip that saves half of your fluid sample, and uh, you'll be OK with our system. Now, current devices can actually do much better than that. And I think in a production system, you would want to lose a smaller fraction. But we'll see where this takes us. So back to the gradient generation example. Uh, we started with 450 valve actuations. You express this in the fluidic ISA. And of course, it's shorter. Uh, we're doing mixing between individual locations on the chip, as well as an input instruction that I didn't show you. And the interesting thing now is that this code is portable across the different instances of the chips. And we actually demonstrated this portability by building two very different chips that are somewhat general purpose in nature. So here's our uh, first chip. It's driven by oil that separates samples uh, using an oil background la layer. Here we have uh, eight storage cells, a rotary mixer, uh, two inputs, and uh, there's a waste port as well. And so the way you implement the mix instruction here, here's an actual video of our chip, is, excuse me, you load a sample into the top, and this is what I showed you previously. Load a sample into the bottom, uh, mix, and then store in a destination cell. And so here we've, this is basically the sample size, is the volume of the mixer, and we've shot that into one of the storage cells. And likewise, we build a very different device, which is driven by air and does not separate samples using any background uh, phase. So now the uh, samples are actually touching the channel walls, so there is more loss in the system. And we actually have to wash the channels between separate uh, operations on the chip. We have a few more storage cells here. And actually, you don't need a dedicated mixing element in a chip like this, because the samples are moving so fast without any resistance from the oil that it actually mixes uh, during the transport process. So uh, if you execute mix and store here, uh, it looks like this. And it might be a little hard to see, but we're basically doing different uh, mixtures of input fluids and storing them down into the storage array. So this is kind of a first demonstration of portability in a microfluidic context. And that's just the basis of our ISA.
so moving on, I'd like to uh, pop up and talk a little more about our protocol description language. So again, here we're trying to simplify the programmer's life and make it easier to write clean and understandable uh, high-level code, where you can actually start to scale up these biology experiments uh, to do really complex and uh, interesting things. So getting back into the abstractions, well, the first abstraction you want in a language is basically automatic uh, management of the fluids, in this case, in the device, or variable names, if you look at an analog like C or Java. So of course, an ISA uses locations. In our language, we'll just use names instead. So we let you declare a variable of type fluid, and the runtime system will assign that fluid an actual storage location on the chip and track it throughout the lifetime of the program to make sure that uh, it's where you want it to be at the right time. So it's a pretty simple but useful abstraction. So now we can talk in terms of yellow and blue instead of uh, numbers. So the next step is uh, fluid regeneration, which goes back to the suggestion here. So uh, to generate our gradient, what we had to do was actually, we're using the variable green in multiple places here, uh, in multiple places generating the gradient. And now, uh, you know, in a computer system, you use a variable, no problem. You can use it however many times you want. But if you're using a fluid on the chip, once you use it, it's gone, right? And you're not going to, well, single use, right? Single use. So you're not going to use it again. Uh, so what can you do? Well, this is the, the loss problem that we've uh, now exported in towards the high-level language. And what the high-level language does here is actually automatically regenerates that fluid for you based on the computation history that it observed you using to get the fluid in the first place. So what we do is now you can just declare a fluid green at the top is a mixture of yellow and blue. And you can use green multiple times. And our system will trace back after the first unit is gone and refire these uh, instructions at the top to regenerate a sample of green. So now you can, it, the code is obviously much cleaner and is automatically taking care of that loss issue by just regenerating parts of the sample. Question? Uh, what about things that require reaction time? Like if you had to mix green, but that only took, you know, you had this. Okay, we're going to get to timing. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions on this slide? Anything that this doesn't work for? What's wrong with this? Well, I have a question. Uh, <laughs> what happens if you have a species that you can't deterministically regenerate? Right? You might have some biological sequence that you obtained via a very special process, maybe a mutagenesis of an existing uh, DNA strand. And you don't know how to get that uh, concentration back. So this is a case where if you refire the recipe that you used, it may have been a whole experiment that will produce a different answer next time. So we can't just rely on automatic regeneration. So for th these kinds of cases, we also allow the user to specify what we call custom regeneration. So for example, for this sequence case, uh, the way that you would amplify a little bit of sequence is not by uh, redoing the experiment, but by using a different uh, system, such as PCR, uh, polymerase chain reaction. You can actually duplicate the strands uh, exponentially in a very short amount of time. So uh, getting into the details, the way they do this is just override a regenerate function, extending the fluid class and calling it a DNA sample. And now when we call to regenerate the fluid, it'll run PCR and get a bunch of fluids, or a single fluid back with a higher concentration. And then you can dilute that sample and return uh, a set of diluted fluids. Question? Why couldn't you just figure out how much of this green <laughs> stuff am I going to need yep. in this computation? And yep, yep. Just so that's enough volume initially to create a big tank. Absolutely. Here. So I haven't said anything about the order in which these operations are scheduled. 
So I've just said the semantics of the system. So when you get into scheduling, you can actually execute ahead in this system, see everything that you're going to need, and then lift all the non-dependent computations to the top. So all the regeneration can be scheduled near the top. Yep. You described a, a level of complexity mm, mm. that is uh, unusual in a C program, to say the least. Um, so coming back to the, the formalism question, there are a number of well-known formalisms, like CSP or PyCalculus, mm -hmm. that uh, I imagine could be extended to deal with the issues of uh, determinacy and uh, some of the other very complicated, which I consider very formal issues that need to be addressed by a programmer of such a system. Well, yeah, I'm looking for formalism. I think actually the closest one here would be functional programming. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm more interested not in the formalism mm -hmm. per se, mm -hmm. but in the issues that the formalism addresses, like determinacy like uh, these mixing properties that you described. Okay, I'm not, I'm not sure if formalisms you're referring to would necessarily help with determinacy. I mean, I think we could show this is deterministic. I'm describing about describing yeah. uh, those, yeah. those. Okay, those yeah, it'd be interesting to talk yeah, in more detail. I, I don't have in mind exactly how I would apply yeah, specific formalism. Yeah. I don't know, you may get to this later, but the thing you talked about with uh, scheduling works great if you don't have any conditional branches or anything oh, on that. Yeah. So are you going to talk about that later? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you can't see past the decision point with the dynamic uh, analysis like that. Yeah. Good. So uh, that's custom regeneration. Also, yeah, detail here. You need a, to specify the minimum quantity that you need to regenerate something. You can regenerate green from scratch, but you need one unit of this sample to regenerate later units. Also, some fluids may still be impossible to regenerate. Uh, for example, if you have a lysis product from the inside of a cell, uh, that seems like a unique fluid that the programmer may not know how to regenerate at all. So for that purpose, we let you declare that as a unique fluid, which will just throw a runtime error if you try to regenerate it. Now, this sounds kind of evil. What's the point of having a unique fluid? Well, it can still be very useful uh, for the programmer to basically keep track of these constraints in his actual program. So here you have a unique fluid, which is a lysis product. And then you might, uh, since it's unique, you might want to dilute it and then use the dilution samples separately in your analysis. Now, this has a strong uh, correlation with some research in programming languages. Uh, it turns out compilers in programming languages are also very interested in unique types, or linear types, they're sometimes called, uh, to ensure that there's, for example, only a single reference on a given data object. And here, it's usually for an optimization uh, in programming languages. For example, you can avoid reference counting in a garbage-collected language if you only have a single pointer on each uh, object. And you can avoid synchronization. There are other things you can do. So there's a rich research area here. And none of the solutions we've seen published will directly apply in a practical way for this microfluidic case. And it, it, mostly because they often require more complexity from the programmer, a few more annotations. And also, they're not sensitive to individual array elements. So for example, here, every element of this array is unique. And you would need to do an index level analysis of this program to make sure that every array element was only used a, a single time. So we can advocate more of a practical approach. We'll verify this uniqueness property in simple cases, uh, but we'll have to warn conservatively about others uh, with certain control flow. So this is kind of an opportunity for programming language researchers uh, to dive in here, uh, we think. OK, so that, that was fluid regeneration. Uh, let's get back to this running example. So here's where we left our gradient generation. Uh, next abstraction, which is very natural to add, is just having arbitrary mixing 
in a user-defined ratio between two of the input fluids. So on the left, we were actually mixing in equal ratios because that's the capability exported by the underlying hardware. But of course, there's no reason the programmer has to match his commands to the underlying hardware. It turns out the compiler can translate automatically uh, from these mixing ratios down into the underlying hardware. And I'll show you an algorithm for doing that optimally, actually, uh, using the minimal number of mixing steps. Now, of course, if you have a 50-50 mixer, you can't mix certain concentrations, like a third, to an uh, arbitrary precision. But you can have an error tolerance. And that's very natural for many uh, biological computations already. And now, of course, you can just uh, refactor this code, and you get back to our uh, five-line mixing gradient uh, that we saw earlier. So moving on uh, in the programming language, what else do you need to have a special abstraction for, for the programmers? Well, one thing is cells. So cells don't fit in naturally to the concepts of fluids that I've shown you so far. Uh, unlike fluids, the cells actually fix themselves to a specific point on the chip. And the way we deal with this is with what we call a cell trap extraction, uh, or cell trap abstraction, where you can basically talk about a specific chamber on the device. And the fundamental capability of a cell trap is just to let flu uh, fluids flow from one side to the other, and possibly waiting for a while in the middle. And then you can populate your cell trap with cells if you send a culture through the cell trap. So what can you do with a cell trap? Uh, you can create a new one, gives you a unique uh, location. You can drain the cell trap of its current contents and replace it with a new uh, unit of fluid. Now, what's interesting here is that when you drain a cell trap, what you get out is a unique fluid, right? Because uh, cells are very stateful processes that no one understands completely. If, if some fluid was uh, flirting with a cell for a while and now it's coming out, you don't know what's in that uh, uh, sample and you might not be able to regenerate it by sending the same sample uh, through again. So this is in the general case. However, practically speaking, uh, biologists often want to monitor a cell for a continuing period of time and may have a sta uh, stable uh, system coming out to monitor, for example, metabolites that are generated by the cell. So if the programmer chooses, they can actually call a different function, which is drain and regenerate, which will, instead of replacing the contents of the cell trap, will actually regenerate uh, the previous contents of the cell trap, put it back in the cell trap, and then extract those contents to give you a regenerable fluid out of the cell trap. OK, so just to make this more concrete, here's an example. Uh, you could set up a cell culture uh, with some simple steps. Uh, and then if you want to analyze the metabolites, you would put, for example, uh, a, a simple uh, solution, distilled water next to the cells, and extract their metabolites with this metabolites fluid. And then you could use that metabolites variable however many times you wanted and be guaranteed it will come back at the right time. And at the end, you might stain the cells for later imaging. Now, of course, there's a dependence here that you have to actually use these regenerable fluids before the cell trap is filled with a different fluid that might alter the state of the cell. So this is, again, addressed by uh, this runtime scheduling that makes sure you finish the uses uh, before you're uh, refilling that cell chamber. And of course, this is very similar to unique variables. You can't do it soundly in the general case, but we can give you warnings to make the programmer's life easier. OK, so the last abstraction in the language uh, it deals with timing constraints. So someone asked about timing. So of course, timing is very important to all biological procedures. You need to uh, often wait for something to happen on the chip. You need to wait for cells to grow 
wait for your enzyme to digest something, and so on. Sometimes you need to do things very quickly uh, before waiting too long. For example, avoiding precipitation in a sample, avoiding uh, photobleaching, things like this. And sometimes you have an exact delay. Uh, every 10 seconds, I need to take a reading. So the runtime system really needs to have an exact notion of how it's timing the operations. Now, from an API perspective, this isn't too complicated. Uh, we just add a method to fluids and to cell traps that say the next time you use this object, it has to be within the given timing parameters. So we say use between uh, time n and time m is looking forward from the time of the call to this function and saying the next use of the fluid has to be within that given window or the next time you refill the cell trap. And what's interesting is this also becomes part of the fluid's regeneration history. So maybe I had some uh, recipe for generating a cocktail of some concentration but it needed to sit to fully uh, regenerate or, or dissolve what is what it's doing. So those constraints will be respected when you regenerate that part of the fluid. Now this gets tricky because we started with a sequential program, and now with these calls we can implicitly require a parallel execution. So for example, whenever uh, you might need two fluids at the same time in a later mixing operation, uh, for example here you're using these two fluids in the same mixture later, uh, if they have an exact constraint and they take a while to prepare, you're going to have to start preparing them in parallel so you can use them at the right time. So uh, you need to have an intelligent scheduler here uh, to deal with this. And so how do you schedule this execution? Well, there are really two parts to this problem, actually. Uh, the first part is relatively simple, actually. It's given the dependence graph between operations, how do you find a good execution schedule? And then the second problem is how do you extract this dependence graph from the actual code? So the first problem you can actually uh, formalize in a kind of a nice algorithmic framework. Uh, you can say, here's the abstract scheduling problem. I'm given a task graph of operations, each with a minimum and maximum latency from the vertex that produces the fluid to the vertices that use that fluid. And then I want to emit the shortest schedule, basically a mapping of those vertices to an execution time that will respect that latency on each edge of the dependence. And it turns out this problem uh, is easy to solve in the simple case if you have unbounded parallelism in your underlying architecture. So this means you can execute any number of fluidic operations in parallel. This is often the case in compilers. If you have unbounded parallelism, uh, you can find a simple schedule, and then you need to execute a very large number of things at once. Uh, you can solve this in polynomial time. It's a system of linear difference constraints. Uh, the, the more constrained solution, which for the next few years might be relevant, is when you have limited parallelism on your machine. So your number of parallel mixtures is actually approaching the uh, capacity of your machine to execute those operations. So this adds a constraint only. K vertices can be scheduled at once. And you can show this is NP-hard. Uh, you can reduce from partition. And so you basically have to rely on some greedy heuristics for scheduling this kind of thing, uh, or even an exhaustive search if you have a very small program. Now, it might concern you that we have an NP-hard optimization problem for correct execution of your protocol. Right, that sounds like a situation you wouldn't want to be in. But it turns out this already exists in all kinds of embedded systems. Uh, if you're really pushing the limits of, let's say, your storage capacity on, you know, on a phone, and you're calling malloc, I mean, malloc uh, guaranteeing that your allocations will fit in a fixed location also turns out to be NP-hard if you formalize it in certain ways. So uh, this, this problem already exists, and it also applies to embedded systems here. The second issue of this runtime scheduling is extracting the, de the dependence graph. And 
pairwise dependences like this can be very hard to extract statically. Uh, it's a long-standing problem, but in the presence of aliasing and other effects in Java, getting a precise producer-consumer relationship can be very challenging. But there is a new opportunity here in microfluidics, which is to perform the scheduling at runtime rather than compile time. And why is this interesting here? Well, the microfluidic operations are executing very slowly compared to your actual uh, uniprocessor. You know, a computer is running ahead a few billion operations per second. Microfluidics is still multiple seconds to do something simple. So it's kind of an interesting uh, direction for research. How do you have an online optimization which really uh, tries to improve the execution of a slow coprocessor. Okay, usually coprocessors are fast. They're speeding up your life. But in this case, you know, this coprocessor is slow, but you want it to run as efficiently as possible. So what you could do here is actually build this dependence graph uh, at, dynamic, uh, at runtime, dynamically. You basically execute ahead uh, until you hit a decision point that depends on a sensor reading from the actual uh, biology. And now you have, a, hopefully, a pretty big graph that you can schedule safely. Of course, the hazard, as uh, was pointed out over here, is any constraints that span these decision points. Okay, you might not be able to handle them safely because you don't know what timing constraints are coming up ahead. You can have some heuristics here to uh, you know, postpone your production of fluids to as close to the decision point as possible, and so on. But for now, we're just prohibiting such constraints and leaving this as an open problem. So I think this is also kind of an interesting place for computer science researchers uh, to jump in. Okay, so all these abstractions I've talked about, uh, we've implemented in the BioStream protocol language. And it has partial support for cells and timing, and full support for the regeneration and other abstractions. And it's implemented as a Java library. Uh, allows flexible integration with, with other systems. And we can either compile it to a normal microfluidic chip, or compile it to a simulator that we can actually auto-generate from an architecture description. So you tell us what properties you want your chip to have, what kind of things it can do, and we'll verify your program conforms to those properties, only uses those capabilities, and then do a functional simulation of just the execution of the program. So what is this kind of thing uh, good for? Well, with our collaborators at the other institutions, we're applying this to some real uh, biology problems. So the first is uh, looking at kind of the health of cells. So what's the best indicator of a cell's viability for the future? This is with Mark Johnson's group at the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine. And you can do a lot of things like analyzing the metabolites of the cell, uh, looking at dissolved oxygen content, other things, to assess how well the cell is doing. And there are lots of applications for this kind of thing. Uh, they're interested, actually, in in vitro fertilization. Second application is looking at the, uh, the approach of basically simulating a given cell. So let's isolate a cell, a mammalian cell, and send it a very complex series of inputs to see how it responds. So it almost starts to feel like a cryptography problem. You have a black box here, right, at your fingertips with a keyboard. And you can send this black box any input function that you want and see what comes back out to try to understand what's inside this black box. And it's pretty interesting. Actually, certain responses are known for simple inputs to the cell, like a step function will generate an oscillatory pattern of actual calcium production in certain cells. But it's not known what happens with a more complex input. And so how do you do that? Well, you can write some code in our system uh, to repeatedly drain and fill the cell chamber in question. And we have some timing constraints here and some mixing going on. And what you're seeing in this uh, video is basically the fluorescence of uh, one of the stimulants, uh, EGF, over time. So this is the kind of uh, pattern we're trying to send to the cell. 
And this elongated structure is more of a, just a diffusive mixer that's making sure you have a, a mixed sample before it enters the cell, which is actually off the edge of the video. But you're seeing the intensity is basically growing and shrinking according to this pattern. And then we can see how the cells will react to that with a later uh, uh, staining step. I'm actually going to skip this slide. OK, compiler optimizations. So I just want to show you an example of where you can be clever in your scheduling of these kinds of microfluidic operations to have a real impact on what, what's possible to do efficiently on the device. And let's zoom in uh, on the question of mixing. So I mentioned before, we can start with very simple mixing hardware that combines two fluids in equal proportions and then have a high-level language that mixes them in any proportions. And we're going to address the question of how you translate from that high-level description into the low-level description. Of course, mixing is fundamental to most procedures. It's kind of the analog of ALU operations, if you like, for a microfluidic domain. And what we're going to do here is, uh, like I said, try to translate from a high-level description, mixing an arbitrary concentration, uh, into the lower 50-50 mixes that's supported by the hardware. Now, is this a trivial problem? Well, why not binary search? We're interested in a concentration of 3 eighths, let's say, and we have inputs that are either a concentration of 0 and 1. Well, let's try binary search. We go to 1 half. We dilute to a quarter. Now, remember, this sample of 1 half is gone now because we used it in our mixing step. So we need to regenerate a unit of 1 half. And now we can dilute uh, together to get to 3 eighths. OK, so we used five inputs and four mixes. Anyone see how to do better than this? Not totally obvious. You actually want to move away from 3 eighths, mix to 1 half, mix to 3 quarters, and now you can dilute the whole way back down to 3 eighths. OK, so there's some pattern here uh, leading you to the optimal uh, final location. And this is four inputs uh, with three mixes. So we generalized uh, this idea, formulated it into what we call the min-mix algorithm. It guarantees the optimal number of mixes to obtain a given uh, concentration on the chip. And it turns out it also minimizes the usage of the fluid samples. So if you have an expensive reagent, uh, you don't have to use very much of it. And how does it work? Uh, it's very uh, simple to understand, actually. The mixing process can be represented by a tree. And this is just showing the order in which we combined samples down to get the final mixture. And of course, the overall contribution to the final mixture of any node in this tree is just exponentially diluted by its depth in the tree. OK, so something at the top here uh, at depth 3 would contribute 1 eighth to the final uh, solution. So what this means is, in the optimal mixing tree, the concentration you're interested in has nodes appearing at the depths corresponding to its binary representation. Okay, so the binary representation for 5 eighths is 101. You put nodes in the tree at those depths. Similarly, for 3 eighths, uh, you're going to be diluting nodes at the corresponding depths. And you can generalize this uh, to actually any number of fluids. So let's say we want 5 sixteenths A, 7 sixteenths B, 4 sixteenths C. You just write the binary representations, draw your tree at the appropriate depth, and connect the nodes. And you can simplify this notion. And as it turns out, it gives you the, the optimal mixing tree. Now, this might seem kind of trivial once you've seen it. But it turns out the previous practice was to use the binary search, which in the worst case is actually exponentially worse than this. Here, we guarantee a logar logarithmic number of mixes for any uh, uh, mixing sequence. That you'll have a logarithmic number of mixes in terms of the actual precision that you're using. So up to a precision of 16 will give you a logarithmic order of growth in 16. 
Okay, so I'd like to just touch on some work in progress uh, going on in our group. This is kind of future directions that is in flight. So one thing we're working on is CAD tools for microfluidic chips. And microfluidic CAD tools are really in their infancy. Okay, many groups will actually design chips with Adobe Illustrator. Uh, you're going to draw them out one line at a time. Uh, groups also use AutoCAD, but there's very limited uh, automation in the design process. And what's interesting is they're not just designing these chips once. Okay? I mean, graduate students can actually do multiple design iterations per week. Uh, they can fabricate the chips in a day. Uh, they can get masks back in a day. So you really have a very fast design cycle. So you're spending a lot of your time designing chips. And actually, as a side note, this is a great opportunity for compiler writers. right? Because as a compiler person, you know, I, I'm often handed an, ar an architecture that has something terribly wrong for, with it from the compiler's perspective. And there's nothing you can do to change it. Right? You're just stuck with that architecture. But now with microfluidics, if there's something you don't like, just go back to the lab. Right? You redesign the chip, fabricate, you'll have a new chip the next day. So it's very interesting here. It's very interesting uh, software, hardware kind of co-design and iterative uh, optimization of the actual system that you're using to have something very uh, amenable. So uh, first step in this direction, we're looking at some automatic routing tools. And we can borrow some algorithms uh, from the electronic domain, but it turns out they do need some adaptation uh, to the microfluidic domain as well. So for example, if you're routing, one of the routing problems is just mapping the valves on the device to a pneumatic input port, which you have to place on the sidelines of the device, while respecting constraints regarding the flow lines, other valves, and other features on the device. And uh, together with uh, Neda Amin, who wrote this plugin for AutoCAD, we've been automating this process. So you, for example, you can place valves on the chip uh, using this tool. You can also place pneumatic inputs. And actually, this step has since been automated. And then you can click a button to uh, connect the valves to the inputs. So this is just kind of a first, first step in this direction, but it saves a lot of time when you're spending your life in AutoCAD. Okay, so we're not the only ones working in this area. Uh, there's another group that built a system called AquaCore. It actually built on our original system. And they're also looking at architecture and ISA issues. So they have some good ideas, for example, eliminating storage from the ISA, and also dealing with variable volumes once uh, chips can come to support those functions. Uh, there are a lot of groups that have also looked at kind of uh, systems that fall above us. For example, how do you automatically generate the control code uh, to run a biology experiment of interest? So for example, there's this robot scientist which will generate and test genetic hypotheses automatically in a laboratory. And they were using uh, macro fluidic systems for this. But this could also be expressed in our language. Kind of sitting underneath us, there are a lot of uh, custom microfluidic chips for biological computation. So uh, these are things we could potentially compile to in the future. Uh, for example, doing DNA computing or self-assembly problems. And this is actually a really interesting uh, overlap area because it, uh, biological computation kind of has a lot of promising ideas. It has DNA computing. Uh, there's biochemical signaling. You can do biomolecular automata, all kind of technologies. But there's no biological computer yet that can assemble itself, you know, sustain itself, uh, program itself, get up and do everything automatically. So using a microfluidic chip uh, with our programming system, you can kind of serve as a scaffold for biological computation, kind of a mechanism for architecture exploration uh, to actually separate the fluids that shouldn't be talking to each other and orchestrating the way they do talk when they should be talking. So this is something uh, we're interested in pursuing as well. 
Also, there are other people building general-purpose microfluidic devices. Uh, so I showed you this soft lithography chip, which uh, uses the two-layer process. There are alternatives to that as well, using droplets, for example, using electro-wetting, dielectrophoresis. And we're not necessarily advocating one design or another. We really think that the programming model should be portable across all these underlying chips and extract the commonalities. Okay, so to conclude, I've been talking today about abstraction layers for programmable microfluidics. And we made a number of contributions in this area as computer scientists kind of coming into this field. And we think there's uh, more scope to contribute as a computer scientist. So we've developed, for example, uh, new actual hardware primitives for separating samples on the chip, for aligning those samples, and for building general purpose devices. We showed the first real demonstration of portability between different versions of these devices, have some new programming abstractions in the BioStream language, and new mixing algorithms that actually have an exponential improvement over what some people were using uh, previously. So really, our vision for this field is everyone will use a standard chip with some kind of standard capabilities, and then you'll write all of your, uh, or a, a good part of your experimental protocols in a de facto language. And you know, instead of actually giving a prose description of your protocol in a journal like Nature or Science, you could actually release your code for exactly how you performed this experiment. And then you could go and you could download that code as a different researcher and run it on your own microfluidic device, or even call it as a library or as a subroutine. So we think this kind of sharing can really kind of start to build up the robustness uh, that you see in biology procedures and let you do uh, much more complex things than you could ever dream about doing by hand. So, you know, we're kind of looking forward to when you're going to write the analog of Microsoft Word, although maybe some people aren't looking forward to that, but you're going to write the analog of, you know, really huge software, but it'll be doing a biological experiment. So there's more information about this on our website, and I actually brought uh, some dearly departed chips here uh, that have served their useful lifetime in the lab. So if you'd like a souvenir, I'd be happy to give you a microfluidic chip to take home. So. Are, are, are your slides at that URL? Uh, not yet. Uh, uh, oh, not this URL. Oh, not that <laughs> I mean, they're on the course webpage, and I'll, I'll be posting them soon. So. Thank you. We have time for a few questions. Sure. Maybe we should go back. Yeah. So uh, I work with uh, various chips doing VHDL, Verilog type of things. Mm -hmm. Are there any? Is there any work in using that same kind of construct to build the the, the chips themselves? Oh right. Yeah, that's an interesting direction. I haven't seen anything like that so far. But what would be really interesting, especially, is to have a you know an abstract description of your experiment and then automatically generate a chip to do that and automating all layers of that process. Yeah, that's kind of where we're headed with the routing. Because without routing, you're not going to get very far writing in, in Verilog. But I think that's a great direction to push. I haven't seen that yet. Has anyone built any kind of like, plugins for, I don't know, some of the IC design software? Right, right. I haven't seen that. I, there is a commercial tool. I think that I'm not sure if it's Fluidon or a different company uses internally. But there's nothing publicly available that you can buy. So yeah, could be interesting. Uh, let me come back. Yep. Um, how applicable are the abstractions you've developed to hmm. human scale high throughput chemical research where you've got like a robot on mixing test? Right, absolutely. Uh, should be very applicable. Uh, yeah, would you need to adjust the abstractions? I mean, it seems that the protocols we've written so far I think would apply almost directly. And like, it could be a really useful uh, backend to have as well. Either compiled to a large scale machine or, I mean, compiled to a human. Right? I mean, I, I, oftentimes, at least for me, I, I've taken 
few biology courses. And I mean, if you're reading through the prose describing an experiment, for someone of a computational mindset, I might prefer to see you know, an exact description of what I'm supposed to do. Right? I pick up A and I move it to B, OK? I, I can do that. It's like a, a cookbook for dummies kind of a thing. So I think, yeah, targeting macro equipment could be interesting and definitely feasible. Yeah. Yeah. Just to scale things, what's the fluid volumes that we're talking about? Uh, we have picoliter volumes in the storage cells. Uh, they're, they're pushing down smaller than that, actually, these days. You can uh, go even lower. But, yeah. And a, a couple other questions. Uh, transport by uh, pneumatics seems like a rather yeah. arcane choice. I would have thought that uh, you would have used some other pumping mechanism. I know Caliper used electrophoretics. And mm -hmm. Use that for good with good success. Um, there, there why the choice? Why the choice for that? Because it makes it makes the routing. It's it's like routing power. It's extremely unpleasant, difficult, and gets in the way of almost everything you try to do on a chip. Uh, yeah. So you're, you're pressurizing the channels. Well, it, this is one of the mo most robust kind of uh, uh, platforms for doing microfluidics that has today has off-chip pneumatic controls. There's a lot of research into eliminating the pneumatics. For example, if you want a portable chip, which is really important for portable diagnostics, it's hard to carry around uh, you know, pneumatic pressure. Uh, so actually, uh, other people in Todd Thorson's group, J.P. Urbanski, is developing a more electrokinetic control that you can actually embed to actually have the fluids flow in a given pattern. And there are other technologies, too. Yeah, we're using this uh, for now because we're focused in the laboratory setting, and it's, it's been very robust. So. I was missing. Sensors of all sorts. Okay, yes. So where are they? Right. So what we've done now is all the sensors have been visual. So you can measure fluorescence, for example, by uh, just putting this thing under a microscope and uh, seeing the radiation pattern coming back at, back at you. So the same with uh, kind of imaging cells. You can do that just with visual sensing. Uh, other groups have integrated other kinds of sensors on the chip: uh, pH, glucose, temperature, things like this. Uh, we haven't pushed in that direction yet. Mass? Yeah, mass. Uh, not sure about mass. No. Electrophoretic you know, separation. Okay. It could of, be. I'm not sure. Yeah. Polymer mm -hmm. chains, for example. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure. Sure. How many do they make at once? How many chips do you make? Do you have like a wafer? Uh, yeah. So it depends how many you can fit on a on a wafer. You can usually fit four or five, kind of a thing. And then you you cut them out of the plastic that you that you poured and you piece them together individually. So what, what I haven't seen is a, a really automatic process for manufacturing these things. I think that'd be great to have, especially for people that aren't experts in building the chips. Actually, Stanford is kind of taking the lead here. Uh, there's a microfluidic foundry affiliated uh, with with Stephen Quake's group that'll actually outsource the production of chips for you. So, yep. Sure. Okay. The language that you described to us, you had a type fluid. Right. Is there any higher resolution in terms of typing? That was the type system of the language. Types of fluid, right? Sure. So you can extend those fluids with a user-defined type. Our library right now doesn't leverage any other specific types besides the unique fluids that I that I mentioned. So you could, uh, for example, we saw the DNA sample subclassing the fluid to provide certain operations uh, that are specific <coughs> to that kind of fluid. So users can do what they want. There may be others out there. Right. But from a programming language point of view, mm -hmm. I think that the high resolution of the typing system would yep. be something that yep. you want. Right? Well, you can make it as fine as you want. You just want other subclasses of fluid. Right. So. Is there, um, have you specified what those? Oh, what the interesting subclasses of fluids are? Uh, 
haven't broken it down too finely. I mean, I think you, know, you want to separate it probably based on you know, what kind of things you're carrying around in the fluids. Is it a DNA sample? Is it a cell extract? Uh, is it an aqueous sample? Is it not aqueous? Uh, is it regenerable? That's the unique characteristic. There are other classifications you could have, but right now our system isn't really leveraging that information for anything, so we don't want to stipulate that down. Can you give us some numbers? Like, I mean, what, what, what kind of, what are the sizes? What are the number oh, sure. of inputs, outputs? How long does it take? How many lines of code? Oh. How many people have used it? How many, how long oh, does it take to do it? Numbers, <laughs> mean on the, okay. Um, In just uh, general. Oh, for the chip? Everything. Oh, oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, BioStream, how many lines of code is that? I don't know. Probably a few hundred kind of a thing, a few thousand, I guess. I haven't actually counted that. We, we have, our example programs right now are pretty small. This is a chicken and egg problem, obviously, designing really long experiments with chips that can execute them. So we have a handful, I don't know, five or six kind of realistic protocols implemented, a few hundred lines uh, uh, in each one or in some of them. Uh, who, how many people have used these chips? Uh, we have multiple users in, in the labs we're collaborating with. I mean, five, five people, something like that. Uh, what are other good numbers? Oh, uh, we usually have yeah, five or 10 inputs on a chip, uh, on the chips that we're building for simplicity. Just to, I mean, they can go up to thousands in the production cycle in uh, uh, the corporate world, but you have to punch more holes for those pneumatic inputs. So we usually have, you know, on the order of, I mean, the chips we've been using, I don't know, 20 to 100 kind of storage cell kind of things. Actually, other people in our group are really ramping that up to have hundreds, uh, even multiple thousands of storage cells. So look out for that out soon from Todd Thorson's group. Uh, yeah, what other numbers? How long does an experiment run? Uh, yeah, so experiments can last a long time, actually. Uh, sometimes you let these things run overnight. For example, we need to serum starve the cells for 24 hours before you actually start doing that cell signaling experiment I told you about. So yeah, these things are, are robust to, you can walk away and they're, they're not going to explode. Uh, <laughs> actually, sometimes they explode when you're there. It's a new notion of a bug when you walk out of lab. It's like, you know, die all over your face. Like, what happened? Oh, terrible bug. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so they can run for a long time or, yeah, I mean, as short as a few minutes, but they can go for days. Yeah, what, what are other good numbers? That's, That's a good, good question. Yeah. Is this something you can do in your back, uh, your back room uh, at I home? Do in your basement? Is it yeah. Actually, it, it's very accessible. I mean, especially with uh, services like this uh, Foundry, where you can basically you know, download their AutoCAD template, uh, piece together your chip, get a chip, and then you just basically wire it up. The pneumatics is, is one thing you'd have to invest in. But, but actually, a setup to get up and running is not that expensive. We've set up multiple groups for local <coughs> installations at Harvard Medical School in Colorado. Uh, so it's quite portable between laboratories. That's actually important. Sure, absolutely. That you don't find people who have uh, immediate access to a multi-billion dollar 45 nanometer fab. Absolutely, yes. Doing much <coughs> that good. Yep. Can you show us the video? Oh, yeah, sure. I can hold one of these up. Yes, this is what they look like. It's just on a glass slide. And there are micro etched channels here, which hopefully you can't see. Are you have eagle eye? But uh, yeah, I have a lot of these here to give away. So, yep. Did you clean them? <laughs> uh, <laughs> nothing toxic on here. Uh, <laughs> no yeah. end checks. Right, right, right. <laughs> Hope not. Yeah. So, do we have any more questions here? Oh, anyhow, thanks. Great. great. Thank you.
For information on other online Stanford seminars and courses, please visit study.stanford.edu. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.